Let's talk development. Episode four. Ji, assalamualaikum. This is Ijaz Nabi. Um, I'm uh, executive director of uh, CDPR, and I have uh, great pleasure in speaking with Dr. Zeba Sattar, Pakistan's preeminent uh, demographer. Uh, she has a tamgaimtiyaz for the services she has uh, rendered the country um, in the area of uh, population and demography. Zeba is the uh, Population Council Country Director uh, in Islamabad, uh, which is a, a, an international organization. Uh, Zeba is uh, also, um, she has a PhD from, um, from London, uh, a master's from London School of Economics, um, and as I said, she's our, our preeminent uh, demographer. So welcome, Zeba, to this podcast. It will be a pleasure to listen to your views on what is happening to the, the important issue of population growth in Pakistan. So let me start off by first, you know, giving the broad numbers. The projections are that Pakistan's population, which is currently about 220, 230 million, will reach uh, almost uh, 330 million uh, in 2050. 2050 is not that far off. And somehow 330 or 340 million people sounds like a lot of people. We would like to discuss some key questions surrounding this this uh, this number, which raises a lot of concern. So first of all, tell us, how do we actually measure population? What are the different indicators of population dynamics that we keep in mind when we uh, when we think of population? Yes, uh, I think the numbers you quote are daunting, but um, are really very real. Um, um, the main ways we measure uh, population growth, uh, are, I mean, the main measure is, of course, the annual rate of population growth. Um, and, uh, and then the second figure that we look out for are fertility rates, which in this country, since death rates are pretty low, it's the, the number of children being born. Uh, on average per woman, or the crude birth rate, which is birth rate, which is the number of births per thousand population. These are the figures that we use. So the population growth rate is really derived from the number of births minus the number of deaths. Um, as I just said, the number of deaths are pretty low um, because this is a relatively young population. Uh, so the main driver of the high population growth rate, which is estimated to be just under 2% per annum uh, is really fertility, um, which is extremely high and a cause of concern. And uh, it's from the fertility rates and the death rates that we derive the projections that you just talked about. Um, and indeed, we are going to be, I think, if we continue at uh, you know the current rates, the mod, what we call, uh, there are three, three types of projections. An expectation that fertility will fall, an expectation that fertility will fall, but not uh, sharply. That's the medium projection. And uh, one that it'll stay the same. Well, our medium projection um, uh, is the one that says that we will be 338 by 2050, 338 million. Um, I just wanted to add that we will have a very accurate figure in a couple of months based on the census that is in the field right now. 
And from all guesses, it's matching quite closely the UN uh, projection for this for this year, 223, which is about uh, 230 million. So uh, without going on and on, we're going to add another 100 million by 2050. Okay, so um, so the numbers that that are being discussed uh, uh, generally uh, seem to be fairly accurate, and uh, and these numbers um, uh, are derived from the underlying uh, factor, which is the fertility rate. So most of the interventions that can happen to bring the overall population growth rate down uh, happen at the stage of. Uh, of fertility and uh, and any success in bringing down the population growth rate uh, will require uh, lowering the fertility rate. Uh, and my under my understanding on this is correct. Absolutely. So let's then zero in on the fertility rate issue, and uh, let me ask you a few questions just for the uh, for information of the audience. Uh, Dr. Zeva Sattar has been. Uh, among many things that she does, she has also been an advisor, a technical advisor to the Punjab Population Innovation Fund, which was set up by the chief, by the then chief minister of Punjab, Mia uh, Shabazz Sharif, uh, to address uh, uh, the fertility rate issue. Uh, so we'll come to that also. But let me start off by saying, uh, asking Dr. Sattar, you know, if people are having the children they want to have, uh, why should we have a problem with that? Um, I think there wouldn't be a problem. First of all, I want to say that uh, other countries, uh, neighboring countries, we can only compare two ways with our, with our neighboring countries as comparators um, as to why they thought, thought it necessary to actually make interventions to actually change the trajectory, fertility trajectory or the population growth trajectory. Um, and we can compare ourselves going back in time. So I'd like to sort of say that I think that if indeed this was a given that people are having the numbers of children that they want, um, it you know then I would say that uh, no policy interventions would be required, uh, such as the ones that we ourselves were um, adopting till we stopped really doing anything in this area or anything big or effective. And the, the interventions that other countries took to really change their trajectory because they knew how important the fertility rate is and how closely linked it is with all other developmental outcomes. So um, it's not a question of, um, you know, let me step back and say, of course, in terms of reproductive rights, it's extremely important that people do have the children, numbers of children that they want. I think this idea of uh, changing mindsets or controlling people to have uh, different, you know, different family size to the ones they want is absolutely not acceptable. Um, but on the other hand, I think uh, what is important is when you know, you can you can uh, actually balance, make more of a balance between resources and numbers. And this is what other countries have done. I mean, if you have children who are, and you know, this number is thrown out and you know it better than me, 25 million out of school, 40% uh, stunting, these, you know, these are not, uh, these are not acceptable. 
uh, one of the highest infant mortality rates of the region. So if we were able to offer every child that's born in Pakistan, uh, uh, you know, full survival till the age of five, uh, school, primary school, um, you know, that is mandatory actually, and, you know, all our indicators look good, then I would say that there was no problem. Uh, you know, people should continue to have the numbers of children that they want. But it is the fact that a lot of the population here in Pakistan actually want to have fewer children, women particularly, but also couples say they want to have fewer children. They want to space their children, but have not been able to use the means to do so. And that's where state interventions uh, do come in. And we can talk about them more specifically, sure. but they relate to population policies that other countries have adopted so successfully. And we have almost stopped doing that since I would say about the early 2000, 2010 period. Yeah. So let me let me then understand this uh, correctly. Uh, the fact that we have such poor social outcomes in terms of children's nutrition, children's survival, uh, children's education. Uh, the fact that we have such poor outcomes suggests that if we wanted those children, we would really have cared about them. The fact that we that that these outcomes are so bad suggests that society it does not really want. Uh, the, the number of children that that the society has because it's not it's not caring for it doesn't have the resources to care for them so that's a very clear uh, signal uh, to which other countries in the region responded bangladesh responded india responded and they brought their fertility rates substantially down uh, so that the population growth rate in bangladesh and india is half ours it's close to 1% where ours is just below uh, the 2% so but that's that's an indirect way of saying uh, uh, we were having more children than we wanted as a society. Um, you once showed me very convincing evidence that there is direct evidence also that the society doesn't want, uh, that Pakistan doesn't want uh, as many children uh, as people are having. Uh, I think the audience would like to hear directly from you what that direct evidence was that shook me up and that shook up the leadership, political leadership of Punjab uh, when you showed the those numbers. Uh, yeah, I think the numbers, there are two sets of numbers. One is what we call unmet need for FEM planning. Um, at, and that, uh, according to the Demographic Health Service done by the National Institute of Population Studies, even uh, they do those regularly every five years. Uh, so the figures are about... 18 to 20% of couples say they want to practice family planning uh, to delay their next child or not to have their next child and are unable to do so. And you can calculate that. And the numbers of couples with unmet need come to about 6, 7 million in Pakistan. That's one figure. But I think the figure that shook you and shook everyone uh, was the piece of research, which I think the Population Council undertook uh, way back in 2002, when we estimated the numbers of induced abortions happening in Pakistan, and we found in 2002, that number was about a million, close to a million induced abortions taking place annually. In 2014, when we repeated, when we got the results of the next round that we did, 
we found that number had risen to 2.2 million. Uh, 2.2 million induced abortions means uh, a very high rate. Uh, it's 50 per thousand. Um, you know, uh, so it's 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 an extremely high rate, one of the highest rates in South Asia. And I think that is the point when you were convinced and we were able to convince jointly the leadership in Punjab. And by the way, subsequently, the the national leadership saw, I mean, the, there was some CO-Moto action taken and they also saw the task force, saw those numbers and was shaken by them. This meant that women and couples are resorting to induced abortions to avoid the next, uh, you know, next child. Which is the worst form of population control. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I won't use the word control, but uh, being in charge or, you know, being able to implement your reproductive decisions, uh, I right. clearly found planning or using contraception, preventing a pregnancy is a much safer uh, method, yes. a much cheaper method. And I had also pointed out to you how expensive abortions can be for women yes. and families and especially poorer people, poor families. Um, you know, family planning is either not available, not acceptable, um, you know, not accessible or not affordable for the situation to become that, you know, 2.2 million um, couples a year. And this is an estimate. And we are getting an estimate for this year. Let's see what it looks like. Uh, are resorting to a totally... I would say it's, I'm not saying that it's uh, unsafe, but relatively much um, more, I mean, it's it's not good for women's health to have repeated uh, abortions or to have an abortion at all. Leave alone, I mean, I mean the, it's much safer for a woman from the point of view of health. And as I said, economically, socially, psychologically, to use contraception instead to avoid that right. unwanted pregnancy. Right. So, so you know, there is a there is an income dimension to this issue. Uh, a, what does the evidence tell us about uh, uh, you know lower income households' desire to have fewer children uh, compared to the upper income households' desire? Uh, do you see a marked difference in the two? Uh, there is uh, there is a marked difference in the number of children uh, desired, or I would say wanted children, um, where you know it's it is uh, it is slightly higher for poorer families, poorer women compared to uh, you know if we break it break households into income quintiles, but at the same time it there is also the unwanted fertility element. We calculate the number of um, unwanted children. A family has, and that is higher too for the poorest families. So they do desire, I think, poorer women because you know they're illiterate or they're primarily rural, or um, you know, for for various reasons, they do desire about I would say slightly less than one child more than let's say the poor, the richest families, but. Um, but I think the differential comes out when they're not able to actually access services and then they end up having almost close to two children that are unwanted. So compared to the richest. So there are disparities increase uh, right. because of lack of services, lack of good communication, um, lack of outreach. You may be living in an area where you never have anyone talking to you about 
a change in behavior. I mean, nobody in the community is practicing, nobody approaches uh, the community and therefore social change or actually access to services is absolutely absent. Uh, but I'm really not even talking about those couples. I may be even including amongst them the urban poor, because right. that's another issue we can probably it would take too long. Uh, you know, in other countries in South Asia, urban rural fertility differentials are huge. In our case, it's uh, about different differential of under a child that has continued for the last 20, 30 years. There's no dramatic decline in urban fertility either. So people move from rural to urban areas, but continue to have a, a, a large number of children. So it's not as though moving to urban areas is somehow reducing the number of children being born to couples. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I mean, I as I said, it might take this conversation yes, to yes, another area, yes. but I'll just say briefly that looking at migrants, um, you know, recent migrants, they tend to carry the same values uh, as at the place of origin. And um, clearly the urban influence of good communications, uh, wider density of uh, services, etc., does not influence them, um, at least for the first uh, generation. And usually by the time the second generation, you know, is probably more educated, more settled in that area, then change happens. So you're absolutely right. I mean, as I said, in other countries, you know, you would expect the urban uh, urban areas to lead this transition. And given a high rural to urban um, migration, we would assume that that change would begin in urban areas. We're not really seeing that. It's almost an even change across urban and rural areas, the slight change that we are actually capturing. Okay, so 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 far we've established two things. One is that our fertility rate, which drives the population growth rate, is even though it has come down uh, in the last 40, 50 years, it has not come down as much as it has come down in other countries like Bangladesh and India within our region. So that's one thing. The other is that households in Pakistan, including poorer households actually want fewer children than they actually have. And therefore, it makes sense for there to be interventions that help them achieve their objective of, of fewer children. Before we start talking about interventions, Zeba, I just want to ask one other question, which is, is there a, a religious concern? Is there a concern that somehow religion does not allow uh, society to intervene in in the fertility rate? Um, I think there is a, a, a wide perception amongst those who, uh, you know, amongst a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of politicians, because we are working with uh, across political parties uh, for the last 10 years. And uh, privately, uh, there's a total consensus about you know the position on we absolutely need absolutely need family planning it's to improve the health of mothers and children improve all the outcomes we've talked about earlier in the conversation um, publicly there is a reluctance because there is a, a underlying sort of fear that are we saying something that is um, you know against islam or that would get us into a, a political wrangle with 
leading scholars. Uh, this is totally misplaced because we worked with religious scholars and uh, they absolutely agree if we have a health argument. I think where the religious problem, uh, religious values do come in contradiction is really when you talk about stopping family planning or sterilization. Um, I think that that is, uh, that is a point of discord. But I think if you talk about birth spacing, Intrinsically, there is nothing in Islam. Um, but, you know, if I think it is more the underlying fear that it might become a, a political cost that a particular party might have to pay or something that uh, a particular individual, if they make a public statement, might get into a wrangle with uh, some, you know, leading scholars. With But, you know, I recently we also had with the political parties, uh, representatives, uh, we had a session with uh, the ambassadors of Bangladesh and Indonesia just a couple of weeks ago. And it was really uh, interesting that Bangladesh and Indonesia, it was not that they thought that they were able to really uh, work across the scholars, Islamic scholars or Islamic principles all that easily, but they tackled it. They took everyone yes. along, um, yeah. you know, right from the beginning. They did not yeah. antagonize. They didn't work around them. Yes. Uh, they made them part of the solution, part of the dialogue. Right. Um, so, so I think so I remember uh, I remember Zeba, you invited me to some big moot uh, in Islamabad on these issues, and several religious scholars actually came up afterwards and said, "Why don't you engage with us, and we will facilitate this because we subscribe to the view that um, that people need to have." Uh, fewer children, so that uh, what what matters is the quality of children and not the quantity of children. I mean, they were they 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 pointed uh, this out very clear very clearly. On Bangladesh, I remember uh, Dr. Zafrullah Chaudhary, who is to health in Bangladesh. What uh, what uh, uh, Dr. Yunus was to microfinance. Uh, uh, and he he came to to Lahore and and spoke with the with the uh, with the government, and he said that one way they worked with religious scholars was to create jobs in the family planning services uh, for uh, for daughters uh, of the religious community, and that uh, that also helped in you know dealing with the resistance that comes uh, sometimes. Now, Zebai, the government has been intervening uh, in this area to reduce fertility rates for, for a very long time. What is your quick assessment of uh, government's success and failure uh, in this area and, and, and so that we can talk a little bit about some exceptional initiatives that, uh, that the government has taken, such as the Population Innovation Fund of Punjab? But first, an overall assessment of... Uh, of where government's intervention so far have not worked. Okay, a quick one. Um, I would say till uh, about the 1980s, um, you know, I would say that uh, whatever was tried out had minimal impact. It was only, um, I always call it the golden decade of the 1990s, where I think, uh, you know, it, we really saw fertility rates come down and some really concrete uh, and really novel initiatives such as the Lady Health Worker Program, you've often heard me talk about that, where almost 100,000 community workers, women, were engaged on a, they were called volunteers, paid a nominal amount to reach communities 
mainly in rural areas, but also uh, in urban slums. And this was a government initiative. Uh, it was modeled on the Iranian model of community outreach and a little bit on the Bangladesh model as well. Um, and also social marketing was introduced. It was a way of franchising private providers to actually deliver family planning services. And I think there was a deliberate effort, a concerted effort, to actually try out new innovations and also to put in resources and have a policy position. And we did see results. Since about, I don't want to pinpoint a particular year because it's difficult to, uh, but I think I would say from about 2007, where we have data and uh, going up to now, we see very little change in fertility. And I would say very, the the interventions, et cetera, even the lady health worker program, uh, you know, has been allowed to go astray. Um, we, and we don't have even the 100,000 that we planned to peak at. Um, and new ones are not being employed for all kinds of reasons. Very few innovations are being undertaken. And you need innovations to actually change things around, change mindsets, either they're, they're in communications or in service delivery. And you talked about the Punjab uh, Innovation Fund. That idea really emanated from the fact that the government may not be able to, um, you know, try out new things, but there would be a smaller, uh, a more nimble, uh, you know, institution that could, on behalf of government, try out innovations. That would the expectation would be that they would be then upscaled by the government across, let's say all of Punjab and hopefully uh, across other provinces too. So the Punjab Innovation Fund was set up with that thinking in mind to use public. It was really a novel idea. And, you know, you are the you, you are the chair of that and you know it only too well. But for the listeners, um, I think that that idea was that we should have an innovation fund everywhere, national innovation, federal one and in the provinces, where you you know the this would be an institution that would be an arm of the uh, regular sort of let's say population welfare and health departments, and uh, actually try out things uh, you know innovations and the one uh, that we really wanted to emphasize was involvement of the private sector the for profit private sector that is does have a thriving uh, business uh, delivering other reproductive health services. Um, you know, and health services, and it's out there. It's uh, private sector is located wherever people are. So why can't we involve them in fan planning? And whatever interventions have been tried out by the PPIF, and uh, Population Council is trying out something in, uh, you know, Islamabad rural right now as well, uh, the evidence is very clear. A little bit of incentivization to private providers can... Uh, get them to really deliver fan planning. They, they, they have no objection. It's just that they've not been tapped. And their network is far wider, far wider um, than the government can ever get to. So it's sort of like using the private sector as a channel. Um, and I think that's what PPIF has done to a smaller scale, needs to be upscaled uh, by the government. So, so let me just very quickly explain what PPIF was motivated by. It was when Zeba, uh, Dr. Sattar, she showed us a, a satellite images of a of Jhelum district, where the government uh, centers for distribution of family planning um, methods was located, uh, and uh, a, and there were few and far between. 
And then she showed us the uh, satellite images of all the private clinics, uh, and they were everywhere. Uh, and having ready access to family planning services is a critical aspect of people actually using those services. Uh, so that convinced us that we really need to reach out to the to the private sector, the private uh, providers of these services, the NGOs uh, who can actually uh, work uh, and reach the families where they are. Uh, so that was a big motivating factor. Uh, now, you know that uh, Punjab Population Innovation Fund is a fund. So it, 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 it actually calls upon uh, private providers of these services, the NGOs, to actually uh, execute the interventions it just uh, makes sure that the interventions are being done according to what the contracts uh, stipulate, uh, et cetera. And one successful intervention was uh, the one that was done to reach uh, poor income households working together with Benazir Income Support Program uh, uh, recipients because they reached the, 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 the poorest households in rural areas. Uh, and so this intervention was done uh, uh, to reach those uh, uh, women, and it was a very successful intervention. The question now is how to scale it up, because you know these small experiments have worked extremely well, and this is where we run up against a sort of a, a societal um, indifference to the to this whole extremely important issue. Uh, there've been so many. Uh, roadblocks in, uh, in, in preventing the scale up of uh, PPIF uh, uh, that if I start to enumerate those, uh, it'll take up a lot of time. But the bottom line is that somehow a, a, it's, it's part of the overall governance structure, which is unfortunately uh, has weakened over time, which results in not enough time being given to this issue, not enough concern being uh, expressed uh, on this issue, uh, that we allow all kinds of things to intervene that prevent the scaling up of successful interventions. But I mean, even that is not doing what it was expected to do. I just want to um, say that um, I think to some extent, um, it's not as as bad as perhaps uh, you're right uh, that there is a reluctance overall. Um, maybe it's a turf issue, but I think there is a governance uh, problem um, constraint that successful. It's not just this uh, successful um, project, but others are not upscaled with the speed we would we would expect. Um, there's a there's a lag. Um, but unexpected, uh, they're, they're, you know, for instance, social protection in Punjab was very, very excited and keen to um, upscale and take many of the lessons learned from the PPIF intervention. And uh, we are taking it to the Planning Commission as well. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there are layers and layers and, uh, you know, we have to run over, go and give presentations again and again. Um, I think I just want to just to add to your very good uh, description, the fact that the poorest women, as identified by the National Registry, uh, the Benazir Income Support Program, received through biometric uh, verification subsidies for travel and for private sector payment of private sector family planning services, um, that 
these women showed up and we ran an RCT which showed a decline in unmet need and a rise in the use of modern methods of contraception in a place like Rahim Yar Khan. This is the PPIF, BISP and POP Council um, intervention. Uh, demonstrates that unmet need is real, that the poorest women indeed do want to practice fan planning. So it's very, very powerful, and it also has a women's empowerment element. So I think it is a question of really uh, trying again and again, but it is uh, not a straightforward route. But if this something like this would be upscaled as involvement of private sector providers, uh, you know, you'd see huge changes and a much better use of public uh, finances than is the case now, which is actually another discussion. We've really done an analysis of where public funding is going for population. And it's really going in places where we don't, we shouldn't really expect any great results. So, so my final question is, there's a lot of discussion of the population issue in, in more recently in Pakistan. Uh, given this, and given your long and rich experience of uh, of uh, interventions and then uh, their successes and failures, uh, do you feel optimistic that we will be able to address this issue anytime soon? Uh, a, it'd be great to get your view on that because that that will hopefully give me strength to continue with institutions <laughs> such as PPI. Well, I, 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 for that reason alone, I would like to say that I am optimistic. Uh, but I, I, I feel if the political situation stabilizes, and we can only hope that it does, that I think there is no reason why we shouldn't really accelerate uh, our fertility decline. I think there's substantial recognition across political parties. As I said, they all agree. Um, uh, I, if we had time, I would really uh, talk about changes in the NFC award that would allow provinces, if the formula would change, uh, you know, allow more fiscal room for provinces, especially the smaller provinces are really talking about that very openly, um, that, you know, you're actually, the NFC award actually uh, favors a larger population size. And if we had more resources that allowed us to invest in uh, reducing fertility rather than, uh, you know, our in sort of inclination is to actually increase it and so on. Um, and there was greater public financing available uh, for family planning, and we made it more widely available, more acceptable. And that would require exactly what you're alluding to, strong political will. Well, um, I have reason to believe that it's it's not off the radar screen, it's very much on the radar screen, but uh, you know, turning to population issues always falls uh, in priority because it has longer-term dividends, as seen by uh, you know political leadership. Um, you know, you get more uh, dividends, you get immediate dividends. You'll go for that. But I think that uh, the time has come where the recognition has happened and is wide enough that it um, unless we do something about our population size, our population dynamics, really we're not going to meet any of our developmental goals, uh, any of be able to improve our economy, uh, improve outcomes for our children. Surely we care about that. So I think uh, voices like yours, and particularly I think having uh, economists, and I do hope some of the ones who listen to this podcast can, and I do see more voices amongst uh, economists as well uh, who are raising this issue. 
which was in ways forgotten for a couple of decades um, as an imminent. And I think if the voices are strong enough, um, things will change. So please, Dr. Jasnabi, do remain uh, engaged and interested in this field because you are a vital uh, leader. We do consider you as that. And it's not just a few population or demographers and uh, people interested in family planning pushing that that will make a change. It's really if it enters the you know the discourse on a, a political level, at an economic level, at a social level, that things will actually change. So, so thank you very much, uh, uh, Zeba. It's it's been a pleasure. Um, and, and and let me conclude with uh, uh, with with this very broad statement that you know a lot of people talk about uh, you know that we have a youth bulge and that this youth bulge can be an asset to Pakistan uh, when the, when uh, uh, there are labor shortages all over the world uh, Pakistani workers will go and fill those shortages and will 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 provide. Uh, uh, value to the countries where they work and also back to Pakistan. Uh, and I think the, the data shows and your work in particular shows uh, very clearly that uh, this this youth bulge uh, will be can become uh, a huge liability uh, also if uh, if the society doesn't have the resources to educate the youth, to give them the, the nutrition and the health, to be active and productive workers of the society, uh, this bulge can actually be a, a huge uh, uh, liability rather than an asset. And a good way to get there is to have the number of children that you actually want to have rather than um, uh, the current uh, fertility rates that we have in the country. Uh, so with that, uh, Zeba, uh, I, I thank you very much for giving us uh, this time and your views and your uh, analytical thoughts uh, that come from long and rich experience of uh, working uh, so exceptionally hard in this area. Thank you very much.